welcome back, my friends. I am so thrilled to be able to share this special episode with you. Uh, this is a one-off, and it was an absolute pleasure to do from start to finish. And I just wanted to share it with you as quickly as possible. My guest this week is the author and political staffer, Hummer Aberdeen. Hummer has served as traveling chief of staff and body woman during the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign in 2008 and was vice chair of Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. She earlier served as Clinton's aide and personal advisor during her successful U.S. Senate campaign in New York in 2000. Homer was born in America to a Muslim family of Indian descent, and when she was two, her family moved to Saudi Arabia because her parents, who were academics, began working there. She travelled frequently back to America throughout her youth and attended college at George Washington University. While she was still at college, she began interning at the White House, serving the then First Lady Hillary Clinton, who eventually became her mentor. Homer worked as backup to Clinton's personal aide for many years before being officially inducted as Clinton's aide and personal advisor. She remained a close aide during her stint at the State Department and all her presidential campaigns. Homer came under scrutiny during the Clinton's email controversy and also weathered an almost unendurable amount of attention during her marriage to the scandal-beset former Democratic congressman Anthony Weiner. She and Anthony are parents to one boy. Her book, Both And, is a fascinating and detailed account of her ringside seat at some of the most pivotal moments in recent history, as well as an intimate look at what it is to be a Muslim, a working mother, and a wife under siege. I was riveted. I walked so many hilltops listening to her narrate her story, and I really cannot recommend this highly enough. It's so beautifully written, and it's an insight into so many worlds, not just the political one, that I knew very little about. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did, and please listen all the way to the end for a very special bookish announcement. Well, this is just such a treat. It's so lovely to actually see your face because I've heard your voice in my ear for so long because <laughs> I, <You're> listened, <laughs> I listened to your memoir, Both And, and it is such a beautiful piece of writing. I mean, can I just start with with that? Not like, quite aside from your life, which is fascinating and um, so unique it isn't everyone's, but but such an extraordinary path that you've had. But you write in such an absolutely compelling and moving and um, what's the word? Like uh, like just in deep pursuit of arriving at the truth of something. And I, I just I, I, I read all the time, and I don't always feel this way about a memoir. I couldn't, as it were, put it down. I walked so many miles because I kept looking for excuses to to keep listening to you. So thank you. Well, I love that it kept you healthy more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, that means so much to me. I'm so, um, I really am so humbled and gratified to hear all those words. And in part because the big surprise in writing this book was uh, of the many was how much I, I enjoyed the writing process, how much I loved and loved to write. And Do I you? discovered that in this process. It was wonderful. Yeah. That's so interesting. I am writing too, and I, I don't love to write. I have to wrestle myself into a chair. And then when I get in the chair, I enjoy it. But oh my God, the getting into the chair is just brutal, I find. I do. I, I definitely had moments of, you know, uh, what is the right word? Um, resistance or procrastination. <laughs> uh -huh. No question. But once I sat in front of my laptop and once I had an idea or a thought or something I wanted to share, it sort of just poured out of me. And hmm. that I had not really anticipated. You know, I thought, how am I going to write enough to fill this book? And in the end, we had, you know, we had too much information. Mm -hmm. We had to cut a lot out of the final of the final book. Did you, are you um, a journal keeper? Because your memory is either so meticulous or, 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 or I, I just kept thinking, how does she remember this? How does she remember this? 
You'll find as you, I mean, so you've obviously listened to the book that the, the moments that were very significant in my life, um, mm. I do remember with great clarity, but I have been a journal writer on and off. I used to keep a diary, diary when I was younger. When I was in government, you were not encouraged to keep a diary. Sure. And so I stopped. But what I would do is in moments of, uh, you know, sort of significant personal moments, I would write a few pages down here and there. And so the sections in the book that are very detailed that this happened and this happened and this happened, I, I did source uh, from my journals. And we were also a big letter writing family. Wow. So a lot of my backup um, writing about my first trip to Israel, really, um, I've discovered this information verified in a letter I wrote to my mother that she wow. had saved, you know, and it was on Jerusalem Hilton, you know, the Hilton Jerusalem letterhead, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a lot of that. Writing is a definitely a, a, a um, very important in our family. Letters, yeah. journals, books, you know. You, you, you could tell. I mean, oh, there's so many things I want to say. One is, one is just as an aside, the detail of the letter that you get to write on Buckingham Palace headed paper. I mean, just that is such an amazing little episode, such a beautiful moment of, of that letter that you wrote to your husband on that paper. Yeah, well, he, he actually really. returned that letter uh, to me. No one's asked me about this and all these years <laughs> we're talking about the book, but in, uh, um, uh, I can't remember exactly what year, but he found the letter in, in, in his papers and he said, mm. would you like this back? And so I had it. Uh, and that's how I was able to, you know, share exactly what it is that I wrote. How lovely. That's a lovely thing to have that back in your possession. Yes. That feels like such a significant manuscript to, to actually own for many, many reasons. It is. It is. I appreciate yeah. your saying that it is. Yeah. Well, thank you for being my guest. It is, as I say, such a treat. It was so lovely to get your list. You're the only person who has given me a list of 10 books and <laughs> asked for five. So you are, we, it, it, if I didn't already know from listening to your memoir, what a hopeless overachiever you are, this was yet more confirmation. <laughs> <laughs> of that. So in the interests of maintaining the format and in my own sort of sanity, yeah. I I took the liberty of picking the five that I felt were that I was interested in that having read your memoir and mm. you know done some research and you felt like I mean obviously they all belong to you and if we can I'm happy to touch on all of them. But I did I, I wanted, there were five that I felt like I really wanted to hear you talk about. Of course. So this is kind of a redundant question, but how hard or easy was it to pick your books? Very hard. Very, mm -hmm. to, that was narrowing the list. And in part because, you know, I, I, and I, the way I ended up organizing it was, was really sticking to books that I really discovered in my childhood or in my formative years as a teen or, you know, just as, I uh, entered university because otherwise um, it would have been a very long list. And you'll see, or you saw in, in that list that I did not, one of my favorite types of books to read are memoirs. And uh, I didn't include any in there. And I, I wasn't reading a lot of memoir when I was younger, obviously. So it was, it was really difficult. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I, I always love asking, you know, how the question lands with guests, because it is a question that I don't think we necessarily sit with. We're, we're asked often for favorites, what we're reading currently, what we'd recommend. But I always think it's such an, a, a provocative thought to go back and think about, wow, what, what were the texts that actually um, helped, m helped me get to where I am now, I also have a fantasy that you know, in another, <laughs> in another life, I would come back and ask, invite my guests again in thirty years' time to see what their, if their books had changed. And what, I think it's a brilliant what, idea. I, 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 I really. Be. It also it forces you to really, because I did have to think about it. It was not, um, you know, there are so many books I've read in the last decade, in the last twenty years, that have moved me. That obviously mm -hmm. didn't make that list, or I feel I really made a, you know, connection, or you know, even you know, works of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but what we read in those early years, what are those first? And especially for somebody like me who grew up in a part of the world where I was limited in terms of the kinds of things I was able to do. 
it was a very conservative society I, I lived in. And so you weren't, you know, I wasn't off to the movies or playing mm. around outside very much. So books really were my escape to a, a much broader universe of possibility. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about your first book, which is the Quran. And I was so thrilled. I had guessed. I had in my heart suspected that would be on the list, if not at number one. And it was at number one. Um, tell, tell me. <laughs> you, know um, you clearly know me well. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, put, you laid yourself out there. I'm afraid I have the illusion of knowing you well. Um, tell, me, tell me when you first remember knowing about this text. Tell me when you first remember hearing it or experiencing it. I don't think I remember a time in my life where I didn't, uh, wasn't familiar with it or didn't hear um, the language. Uh, uh, again, I, you know, for me, when I started my memoir, I write about um, how uh, uh, history and storytelling is a big part of my family tradition. But that included oral history. So much of what I learned about my life and where I came from and who I am was an oral tradition. And, the, and the, one of the beauties of this text um, is that the Quran really was uh, an oral, you know, an oral um, uh, uh, inspiration, really. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I want to say, you know, even as an infant, just listening to it on the TV, you know, coming through the radio, um, every time, you know, five times a day, there were prayers in the mosque. And there's, to me, there's, I find uh, the language very soothing, very pleasant. It's almost like it's this melodic musical and there's just such rich meaning. And to be somebody who had to learn the language, who had to learn Arabic and studied Arabic in school to the great power that comes with understanding also what it is that you're reading. Mm -hmm. And, and there are stories that are fascinating stories. You know, it's a tale, like just like the stories in, you know, in the Bible in the old Testament, the new Testament, you can just get lost uh, it can be an escape. And for me, it absolutely has been just to kind of fall mm. into it and read. Mm. Uh, I find always very therapeutic. That That is what, uh, and you'll correct me here, but, but that is what the Quran means, right? It is the act of, of reading. Well, the very first word revealed, I mean, the, the and, I, and I, I do share this in the book that, you know, I always get, um, you know, very defensive when, you know, there are all kinds of attacks on my faith and one being that there's a lot of ignorance, um, uh, in, you know, in my religion or intolerance. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the reason I get so frustrated is because the very first word revealed and what we believe the very first divine revelation to Muhammad, you know, who was an illiterate, uneducated, um, you know, trader, really salesman, if you will, and was read Iqra. Um, and as he was sort of meditating in this mountain cave. And to me, it just shows like how important the act of reading and the act of exploring, the act of seeking knowledge was and is to anybody who claims to be a follower of this faith. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I, boy, was that how I was raised. I mean, the notion, mm-hmm. the, you know, the single most important thing was to be educated. Everything else was secondary, really. Mm. Do you read it now? Is it a, is there a copy you take with you? Do you travel with one? Do I have several copies it? in my house. I used to travel. I did have a travel Quran I took with me fairly often. It's Ramadan. And so mm. I am reading it more regularly mm. and obviously, you know, reciting the verses uh, during prayer. So yes, I like to, you know, I have a little pink chair in the corner and I like to just escape and just sit and, and read through. And I don't read it in any kind of order. I just, you mm-hmm. know, whatever kind of comes to mind or, you know, inspiration, hope that I certain, you know, particularly during the pandemic, I mean, this idea of feeling so, you know, alienated in some ways and so lonely, even when you are not alone. I mean, I've mm-hmm. certainly like many people, um, it, it is, it is good to find a place that reminds us what is important in life. And Mm. I find that whenever I go to that text, I always feel a little bit more grateful for what I have, even on days where I feel pretty like bitter that all the things I don't have, (laughs) no, no, I've got plenty and I've got my health and I've got my family and I've got a a fairly amazing and privileged life. And Mm. it's good to have a text that reminds you of that to me. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the pandemic was so, um, 
illuminating in that way yeah. in terms of what are what brings me solace what 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 right. what is um it's such an interesting question i heard it on the radio the other day is um what is currently saving your life what's saving your life and i love that question i really sat with that question for a day thinking god i mean my nanny um <laughs> <laughs> right uh, and 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 it, and it went on from there and it was a really um it was illuminating and I, f- I feel like the pandemic allowed that kind of inquiry. It began with Absolutely. chaos and disarray and I didn't have the concentration span to read so much as a haiku poem. I, I couldn't tolerate anything. But as it as we sort of deepened into it uh, and a rhythm emerged and Zoom school became a reality that was <laughs> just, we just had to deal with. Right. So the need for, for um for me, for for disappearing back into books. In fact, this podcast re-emerged. I used to do it, and then I took a long pause, and I came out of the pandemic wow. longing to talk to people about books again because I had felt so much more connected to books. For me, I, I, I uh, for me, my my faith is is largely Mary Oliver. So I go to oh. her poems, <laughs> and she. Uh, you have a kindred she, spirit here. For sure. Yeah, yeah. She gave me. Um, she gives me that the the. Uh, comfort that I recognize and and a sense of faith and spirituality that for hers is is immersed in the earth and and in the sort of renewal um, that I hear and and recognize in in your relationship with the Quran. I don't mean to minimize. No, not at text all. In I, any way. Not at all. And I completely agree with you, by the way, about Mary Oliver. I think the way that she just she is a magician with words in so many ways. I mean this and connecting us. Uh, to earth, one of the things I rediscovered during the pandemic was nature, was mm. that every time I took a walk, every time I was out in the world, even on days where I was stuck in my cramped apartment right in the middle mm-hmm. of everything, and then mm-hmm. even stepped outside to take a walk on a few city blocks, just being the fresh air made, uh, you feel better. So I, I it, completely agree about Mary Oliver. It, yeah, no, I, 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 the same thing. It suddenly became a privilege to be outside, this yes. thing you've taken for granted. My parents are in London and they were... Um, you know what you weren't allowed to so much as walk your dog oh. in the early days and just oh, felt yeah. like my god the gasping for air is just awful um Absolutely. so i want to talk about your second book which i was so intrigued by mm. i was intrigued for many reasons the book i chose for you <laughs> was um beyond the veil by fatima manisi i hope i'm pronouncing yes. that correctly um Male and Female Dynamics in the Modern Muslim Society. It was published in 1987. Um, I was so thrilled to see her name on the list because you use a quotation of hers in your book as an epigram to open one of your chapters. And I had already made a note of it because I, I loved it so much. The epigram that you chose is writing is one of the earliest forms of prayer, mm. which I it's so lovely to hear something encapsulated mm. that you've thought without knowing that you thought that your whole life. Mm-hmm. So it was just lovely to see her name on your list because I was like, oh, well, then we need to talk about her because I've already flagged her as someone I want to know about. So I, I did a little research. I found a copy online. I, you know, skimmed what I could just to try and um, see what what the book was about. And it, it's it was fascinating i want to know what the book means to you when when did you read it if you can sketch out just briefly what the book tackles and then we'll talk about well i was relationship to it i was very young actually i mean the reason that that fatima mernissi and the book um had such significance to me i was very young when i read it it was on my mother's bookshelf um and i think if i am correct the first version may have actually been published in French. I mean, um, Fratma Mernissi was Moroccan, uh, Moroccan, uh, you know, in my opinion, icon, feminist, hmm. you know, leader, thinker, um, thought leader, certainly. Um, I think it might have been published in French in, the, in 1975, only the 70s. Oh, right. But translated into English. So I must have been 10 or 11 when I first mm-hmm. read it. And I think that's why it had such an impact on me. And in part because to be a Muslim girl living again in Saudi Arabia in a fairly uh, conservative society and then having these words in front of me, this woman who 
you know, in her form of prayer, in her writing, where she mm-hmm. essentially says that the, the, the possibility that women have in this society is really endless and that we, but we have to know what we're entitled to, that we have to know how to assert ourselves, that we have to know our power, we have to find it. And, and she said a few things at the time that were fairly, you know, um, I don't want to, you know, made provocative, mm-hmm. um, if you will. And so I think what it gave me is really sort of a courage and a confidence in this notion that it was okay to think whatever it is that I wanted to think and challenge, um, you know, coming from a society, a cultural society that often is like, you don't challenge, you mm-hmm. just accept. And she just seemed like somebody who didn't accept the status quo the way it was, the way it was, mm-hmm. is that she was constantly exploring and, and in part because, and you know, one of the reasons it was so important is my mother was and is a sociologist. And so she was writing about, you know, things uh, and exploring topics like, um, you know, uh, birth control and family planning. Again, in a world where these were things you did not talk about, they were sort of considered these uncomfortable back in the 1980s, you know, women weren't talking about that in conservative societies. And my mother was, you know, very upfront in terms of saying, no, we need to teach, women need to know about their bodies, they need to understand what their rights are, they need to have a say in how many children they're going to have and participate in this world. Now, in 2022, this may sound like old whatever, but back then, uh-huh. you know, these, kind of, these conversations my mother and Fatima Marinisi were having were just, they were all right and correct and important, but they were bold. And, um, and so that's why she has stayed with me. I mean, I have not read the book in many, many years, but she gave me a window into you can be an Arab, a feminist, uh, a believer in anything was possible and, uh, uh, and, and basically an acceptance to be that way. So interesting. So did she, and this was my question when I was researching the book too, did she illuminate for you patriarchy in which you were living or were you already aware of it? I mean, given the extraordinarily, you know, advanced, evolved household that you grew up in and the supportive dad, I'm curious whether she turned the lights on for you to the world you were in. She was the first person who had it put it in writing for sure. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the first time I read it in words that this, Mm. that, that, so long as we lived within a system that was a, that, that was the within the patriarchy, that it was not going to be easy for women, and all the more reason. I mean, it gave me, it made me a little bit more gutsy about my mm. my possibility. And again, I you know I uh, going back to the point about privilege that you and I had earlier. Mm. If I didn't have the privilege of getting on a plane, you know, once or twice a year, I I may have felt a little bit more restricted in the environment and the situation that I was in. But my my parents. You know, that is not how they raised us intellectually. Um, and uh, But yes, it was the first time I saw it in writing. And it was, mm-hmm. you know, I think my eyes were just, you know, wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah. I found a little, I, I want to read a little extract from it because I was also struck by um, – by how beautifully she writes. And, mm. and if you haven't read it for a while, maybe it'd be fun for you. Yeah, to no, I, I want, yeah, I should. And want, yeah, um, looking at it. <laughs> I, I, I've had several extracts, so let me pick the one that would be best. Here we go. Oh, this, this I thought was fascinating. The difference between, this is from, uh, this is an early part of the book. The difference between the West and us is in the way we consume death the past. Westerners make it into a last course, and we try to make it the main dish. Westerners consume the past as a hobby, as a pastime, as a rest from the stress of the present. We persist in making it a profession, a vocation, an outlook. Mm. In order to understand the ancient texts, you have to be rooted in the present. You have to take up distance from the texts in order to decode them, to give them their meaning. The reader must separate his own time, that of the present, from that of the text. Otherwise, we project our problems onto the ancestral text, and that projection impedes our understanding of it. I thought that was such um, not only a a beautiful point, and fascinating to me as a Westerner to understand a cultural difference, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, that there is a fundamental different interpretation of time and of the past, and 
obviously not speaking for all Muslims at all, but that, that's the point she's addressing is if you get too locked into the past, then we we have no we have no ability to to move forward into the present, right? We're bound by it. I mean, I, I feel the same way. The same paragraph could apply to rigidly reading the Constitution as a document entirely about the past, right? Mm-hmm. And not as a living, breathing thing that needs to emerge into the present. Right. No, I mean, it's it's something, it, it is, it's, first of all, I, get, I was had goosebumps as you were reading it, because there is such wisdom in the way she talks about the East and the West and the cultures and being raised in both worlds. I feel so comfortable in both places. But this idea, you know, in the West, for example, when somebody passes away, sometimes people will say, oh, he was taken before his time. And in the East, and this is something, you know, that uh, Fatima Mernissi would have certainly agreed with, is this notion of, no, you're, you know, everyone, there's a book and you're of your time. And when it's, you know, time to go, it's your time to go. Mm-hmm. And there's even, you know, a specific kind of guidance on mourning is, you know, you, you know, you have, you have three, you, you, you are buried immediately. There's three days of mourning. And then, you know, for, you know, if you're a widow or a widower, there's a certain period, but then you move on, life moves on and that it's incumbent upon the community to be there with you. You have to show up for funerals and and weddings, but this idea of learning from the texts in the past, interpreting them, you know, some people say that believe that parts of the ancient text are text is part of it is descriptive and part of it's prescriptive. And so it's the, when there's a a story about, you know, something that happened, you know, to Muhammad, for example, is it, okay, I'm going to follow exactly this, or is it, what is the lesson that I'm taking? What is this story a metaphor for that I can apply to uh, modern day life? And I think that she really guided, I mean, take aside, you know, the fact for, to me, I think what she represented um, was this notion of a, a, an Arab, you know, Muslim feminist. But more than that, it was really bridging, kind of trying to explain one world to another. And, mm. um, and, I, and I think she did. I mean, you know, she broke through back in the 70s and 80s in, in, um, in the West in the way that I think no other um, Arab Muslim or female author did at the time. I mean, I would, mm. I would make that argument. And so mm. beautiful passage. Beautiful passage. I'm, I was so thrilled to be aware of her work. I really was. I have more passages here. We won't do them, but I, I'm grateful for them because mm. I really enjoyed it. Um, the next book that I chose for you, <laughs> it's so strange to say that, but I'm going to do it and then we'll go back and mention the others that you wanted to talk about, um, was a book that I loved so much as a child. And so I was so thrilled to see it. And we haven't had it on the show yet. Little Women by Louisa May mm. Alcott, which was published in 1868. Um, I was so surprised to realize no one's chosen that book yet in all my guests, given uh, how formative I think it is to the sort of s- certainly American national mindset. I, I really, I really do. Tell me when you read it and who gave it to you and what your associations with it are. It was another uh, one of these books that my parents uh, brought back uh, from a trip. It was one of my favorite. I was very young when I read it the first time. And, um, and one of the reasons uh, I loved and love Little Women is because I felt very connected to, um, to the story in that, um, and obviously, I, I've connected specifically with Joe. I mean, I, mm-hmm. to me, and maybe there are many young women who feel this way too. I mean, it that family in some ways was our family in that, mm-hmm. you know, we had a, a, a mother who kind of kept it all together. Mm-hmm. You know, she did everything, sacrificed everything. A father who was, and I don't, I don't know. I probably wasn't conscious about this at the time. Sure. In my subconscious, this notion of a father who was in some ways absent because he physically did not have the strength or the ability to be around and he traveled a lot and he was so busy, you know, he was always working or on the road. And then, you know, having, um, you know, an older sister who was perfect and, or actually, I'm trying to think, I don't know, Beth was younger than, I think Beth was younger than Joe, but he played the piano and she was, yes. you know, always so good. And, you know, she reminded me of my, my, you know, my, my older sister. 
And then, and then her, the younger sister who was like the beautiful and in the end got everything. And that was my younger sister. Uh-huh. And, and so to me, one of the reasons I love that book is I, it felt maybe like my secretly who I was going to be. Like I was never going to be the woman who got the guy. I was never going to be the one who was talented at music. I was never going to look, you know, I was the awkward, gangly, you know, buck tooth, not attractive sister. I was, you know, (laughs) I don't want to say, I hate when women do this. I, I wasn't the ugly sister, but I was definitely the, you know, and yeah, she, we got to deal with, you know. The one we don't know what to do we with. We don't know yeah. what to do with. She's always lounge. She's always causing problems. She's always kind of in some kind of a mischief. And that's really who I was. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, I love, um, I love that book. And I think a lot of people, maybe Americans did connect with that also. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, it, it's so funny how the, the same book plugs into us in such different yeah. ways. I, I remember reading it many, many times, all of the books over and over. And for me, it was, I felt so, it felt so other. It felt yeah. so other. I was raised by a single mom essentially. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and it was just me. I'm an only child. I have halves and steps, but it was just me and mom for so many years and raised in London. So this, uh, this, you know, absent dad who's off, you know, a, a chaplain in the Civil War. And the, the whole world circumstances of it felt so foreign, so utterly foreign. And yet I too felt like Joe, despite not having siblings. Despite not having <laughs> but, but I think, I think we're, I think we're meant to, I think Louisa May Alcott is, is, is asking us to lean into, to Joe, who is, who she was too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I want to read the passage. It's a little bit long, but I'll skim through it. But yeah, it's the moment it's- where all the family is introduced. And I think it's such a it's such a lovely piece of writing. It's so deft and it's so economical. And it's also funny, which I love. And I think that, you know, Alcott can get sort of branded as as you know this moralist which I don't really think she was I think she had great artistry and and this to me is a really good example of how funny she was as well as gifted Margaret the eldest of the four was 16 and very pretty being plump and fair with large eyes plenty of soft brown hair a sweet mouth and white hands of which she was rather vain 15-year-old Joe was very tall, thin and brown and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in the way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose and sharp grey eyes, which appeared to see everything and were by turns fierce, funny or thoughtful. Her thick, long hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Elizabeth, or Beth, as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of 13 with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression which was seldom disturbed. Mm. Her father called her Little Tranquility, Mm. and the name suited her excellently, for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. Amy, though the youngest, was a most important person, in her own opinion at least. A regular snow maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair curling on her shoulders, pale and slender, and always carrying herself like a young lady, mindful of her manners. What the characters of the four sisters were, we will leave to be found out. I I wanted to mention to you because I couldn't help thinking about it. There's an amazing, do you ever listen to This American Life? I'm sure you yes. don't have time. But. I some, uh, Sometimes, not often, but I have, yes. So there's a fantastic episode of This American Life. It's actually episode 680 because I went to look it up. And it's the story of an American girl who is Pakistani in origin. Hmm. And she's raised in Maryland by what she thinks are her parents. She discovers that her parents are not actually her parents her mother is her adoptive mother's sister and her and the sister so that the birth mother lives in Pakistan and was unable to have children this the adoptive mother was unable to have children so the younger sister provides her with a daughter who is then raised in America so the adoptive parents go on to have their own children and so the birth mother back in Pakistan says well you've had children so we'd like our daughter back so 
uh, too long-winded to explain, but this young girl, not young, she's in her teens, ends up taken back to Pakistan, having been raised in Maryland, and is essentially abducted by her birth mother, who is really her aunt, and the father, uh, and the, uh, yes, her uncle, her uncle and aunt. The only book she has access to, because a friend smuggles it to her, is Little Women. And she rips it into eight so that she can lie it flat underneath her mattress and that it won't cause enough of a bump Mm. because everything is being taken from her. And she reads Little Women over and over and over again. And it saves her life. Mm. It it literally saves her life. And the interviewer, she's now much older and she's unsurprisingly a trauma therapist. The interviewer, who is not Ira Glass, but a very good interviewer, um, tries reading a few sentences and she can finish each sentence that the interviewer offers. That's how fully ingrained in her it is. And I just thought when she was asked why it was so relevant to her, and forgive me, this is a tangent, but it was so interesting in the Pakistani element. I, I just thought it was fascinating. This there, there was a parallel that I wanted to sort of share with you that the the interviewer when asked, why did it, why this book? I mean, it could have been anything, but why this book? And she said, because it felt like a survival guide. Because the 1860s, the puritanical world that Joe and the girls are having to navigate in terms of manners, courtship, how to behave, how to conduct oneself in a world, felt like an actual replica of mm. this incredibly uh, entrammeled society that she was being uh, asked to live in mm. um, with this for this family, and they were, you know, ultra orthodox, and so this was a, a very, very rigid world that she was suddenly flung into. And I thought, again, like just there's just three instances me child of a single mum, you feeling your there's your family uh, mirrored on the page, so beautiful. So powerful, yes. There's a lot about Louisa May Alcott. I mean, the way, because it's so much more about, like, we each find a connection, but this notion of sacrifice and family and, you know, and uh, and different societal stratospheres and, you know, it, it, um, there's just so much in there for everybody. I mean, you know, the idea of, you know, Beth getting sick, just, you know, sharing their, was it Christmas supper? I mean, all these, you know, uh, you know, Joe cutting off her hair. I mean, it's just all of these things, you know, the letters from, you know, from their father that just kind of tug at your heartstrings, but also in some ways deeply connect you to these characters and, and you find something in that to keep you, keep you going really. That's an unbelievable story. It's a team. great episode. Yeah. I want to. I want to look it up now. Six, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, you said, right? e- episode six eighty. Six eight zero. It's called the weight of words. It's it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I again, I, ha- I had the book hasn't come up, so it was fun to do some research on it. And um, <laughs> I found a letter that Louisa May Alcott wrote saying that she she really hadn't thought much of the book to begin with. She really hadn't. I re- and- I remember this. I remember reading about this that she didn't think it was that you know you know, that special necessarily. and No, not at all. And the editor wisely gave it to some young women to read, all of whom came, young young women, girls to read, all of whom came back begging for, for more. more. And um, Louisa Mailcott finally wrote that she was tired of providing moral pat for the young. <laughs> I felt like, all right, fair enough. I love it. Good for as um, do I. That's funny. So the next book I wanted to talk about is The Scarlet Letter Mm. by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This was published in 1850. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me when you read this and and how it came to you, if you can. It was a book in our house, um, again, in our our library. And um, I've read it before, and then I read it again at at university in Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. actually. I did a year, a gap year between high school, uh, and it was part of... um, the assigned reading, which I, if for English literature for my freshman year. And even, I, I mean, I'm thinking well, that was pretty, you know, I guess surprising now that I reflect on it. Um, I included the Scarlet Letter. I mean, you could read it in a sitting, right? You can, you can, you know, read it while you're, I don't know, waiting the dentist's office. But in part because to me, it was the first time uh, I, it, op- my eyes were open to the notion of rejection, 
the notion of shame, the notion of um, of of really being a singular woman out in the world, and I could not relate. I could not understand. I could not. And so I would go back and read it and say, and to be honest with you, the first time I read it, I was so young that I'm not sure I really even understood Hmm. in that it was, well, what do you mean she had a baby and she doesn't know how, like, what, Mm -hmm. what is the, wait, what does this mean? Like, how is that even possible? Um, She's not married. So how did she have a baby? You know, (laughs) so I don't know. I've. I was really young. Um, and that's one of the things I appreciate on my parents. You know, they didn't really, it was sort of like read everything. And then, you know, and I, and I, uh, I, I remember taking, and the reason it's significant, I remember taking it to my parents one night and saying, can you explain this to me? Ah, interesting. And what, what, did, they, what did they say? You know, in, in, uh, in language that was probably appropriate for somebody my age, it was this notion of making a choice in one's life that, has ramifications in their society and their community that are pretty, that can sometimes be rather, um, you know, uh, strict or stringent or unaccepting and, um, and how you really learn and discover about yourself um, in that experience. So I think it was more about how to, the lesson I think they were trying to teach me is that, you know, independent choice has consequences Mm. and you have to be willing to accept what those consequences are, whatever those might be. And, um, and that, and that sometimes that judgment can be very harsh. And so Mm. it it just, it stayed with me. She stayed with me. The idea stayed with me. The you know the townspeople in the square just you know the the taunting and the and I just remember thinking I can't even imagine what it would be like for somebody to look at me and feel and believe these things. Then of course thirty years later I was her and um, mm. and I know a lot of people I, I put it in the book and a couple of people said well you weren't really you know you didn't really do anything wrong I said right but I was meant to be, I felt that way, you know, it was sort of, I did, I was accused of and felt very complicit. And, uh, and so that's why the book came back to me now, mm. you know, when, when it was like, what are, what are, um, cause it was shocking at the time. And now I can relate. I went from not having any idea of what this woman was going through to understanding completely. It's so interesting. What do you think the book taught you about shame? that you, like, how was shame metabolized in your family anyway? And then how did the book maybe differ or resonate with that, do you think? I was certainly raised in a conservative house in that you did not, you know, you didn't wear revealing clothes, you didn't, you know, and it wasn't, and it was not, and then I was told, like, you know, when I went to college, I mean, it was very clear, you know, we are doing our job raising you and then you're going to go off to university and then you make your own choices and we're not going to be, you know, overlording you and, you know, you decide. Um, I do feel um, as though choice, independent choice was something put upon us. You know, it's like the, I'm not sure I wrote this story in the book, but when um, when I was uh 13 or 14, I, um, I picked up smoking as a lark and more to just to be rebellious. And I would go to the roof of our house and smoke and, and, uh, and would, you know, smoke these, you know, Marlboro reds that, you know, my friend gave me and I hated it. It was just, I hated the whole experience, but I was doing it cause it was a thing to do and to, and, and rebel. And then one day I get called downstairs and my dad's office, my mother's there, her arms are crossed. She's very angry. She's very upset. And instead of shaming me, which a lot of, you know, my, all of our friends who got caught, my father swivels around in his chair and he pulls out his pack of camel lights and he, you know, takes one out and he hands it to me. And um, he says, if you're going to do this, we're going to do it together. You're going to learn how to do it right. And I'm sitting here thinking, no, the whole like fun (laughs) of this whole thing was like going to the roof. I don't want to do this with you. You know, it's like now how, you know, just on this digital, uh, um, uh, uh, um, you know, digital responsibility Zoom uh, with Mm -hmm. other parents from the school and the woman who was giving us, uh, instructing us in the class said, you know, 
Um, sometimes your children are watching uncomfortable things. Watch it with them. You know, you should, so they can, so I, I, my parents never made me feel like I needed to be ashamed about anything that I did. Mm -hmm. It was the, the message was very clear. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you can do anything you want. Just know that no freedom in this world is absolute. So if you choose to go naked in the street, okay, do it. But there are consequences. And then you have to deal with those consequences. And that is how um, – and so maybe in some ways, um, honestly, Sonia, I was not – you know, I was so sheltered that when I did have to confront shame in reality for, for some amount, of, I was so unprepared for it because I had been raised with such a confidence in self and who I was and what I represented, what my family was, that when I felt shame, it, uh, it really aided me. It really, you know, uh, damaged me both inside and out. I mean, even now, you, you know, you've read the book and the stories, I mean, there are thousands of people who came up to me and said supportive things, but the people who shamed me or would mm -hmm. outright say nasty things, those are the stories that you kind of you know, they just stay with you. Um, mm. But, uh, and maybe that's why the book keeps coming back to me. Cause to me, it's one of the, it's one of the singular, you know, journeys out there in the world about what it is to live in shame, mm. not being, you know, forgiven. And, and well, yes, also that, you know, I was, I haven't read it for years. And so I really enjoyed reinvestigating it again. It hadn't come up on the podcast yet. And I was so struck about the journey that um, that she does go on, that she begins in shame, and that A is a brand on her body, even though it's beautiful and it's described as being this exquisite and unusual. Yes, and I'm glad you write very important point. Yes, um, that it is a that it is a it is never described as something ugly. That it's it's actually got sort of lavished. Um, detail on it and that it becomes over the years um it, it comes to stand for something different mm -hmm. and that it actually having lived in shame allows Hester uh insight into other people's uh plights there's a there's a passage and I I, I just want to share it because I, I thought, was, thought it was so beautiful the the redemptive um, mm -hmm. arc of, of this. Yeah. She, it's, it talks about her, um, I had picked out the piece where you first meet her in chapter two, but I'm going to jump to seven years later. She came not as a guest, but as a rightful inmate into the household that was darkened by trouble. There glimmered the embroidered letter with comfort in its unearthly ray. Elsewhere, the token of sin, it was the taper of the sick chamber. It had even thrown its gleam in the sufferer's hard extremity across the verge of time. It had shown him where to set his foot while the light of earth was fast becoming dim, ere the light of futurity could reach him. In such emergencies, Hester's nature showed itself warm and rich, a wellspring of human tenderness, unfailing to every real demand and inexhaustible by the largest. Her breast, with its badge of shame, was but the softer pillow for the head that needed one. And I thought that was uh, is one of the reasons this book is is a classic, mm -hmm. and and that Nathaniel Hawthorne is such an exquisite mm -hmm. writer is that the understanding and the insight mm -hmm. that nothing stays the same. Yeah. There is no stasis. She's not just an exile and uh, staring in disbelief at you know this blazoning on her, but that the softening that happens and the insight and then the ability to connect with another human being. In my wild fantasy, I was thinking about how I wondered whether what your experience has been has allowed you to write a book that is, in its way, another pillow for people to lay their heads on. Well, it's so you said it so beautifully, and to sort of tie it back to this notion of wearing this symbol and and the redemptive quality um, uh, in the book. And I do, I should, I should read it. I, I should read it again. Um, you said you can, it's a, a sitting at the dentist. Yeah, not, yeah I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But this notion of, you know, even changing how one behaves. And certainly that happened with me is to go from, you know, feeling, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, an elephant in a zoo being, you know, photographed constantly that it took me from feeling very insecure about 
uh, or very shamed constantly and feeling like the elephant in the room to really a great sort of pride, you know, it, 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 I evolved to a place where I no longer wanted to have to deal with it. I didn't want to hold on to, uh, I took the letter off myself, you know, it's sort of, I'm moving on. I, you know, I have a child I'm going to raise. I'm going to operate in this world. I can hold on to this as, you know, um, uh, a lock around my neck forever. But the only person was hurting was myself. And so mm-hmm. moving on and not feeling the glares and the, you know, double takes and the same with the same kind mm-hmm. of um, kind of trauma that I did earlier on. So I think very much for me, it was a very similar mm-hmm. redemptive, you know, pro- I had to go through it. Mm-hmm. But I was able to get through it and and get to the other side, thankfully. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I was really glad to um, dig into that book. Um, the last book that I picked is Silas Marner, oh. Mother of Ravelo, <laughs> yeah. 1861 by George Eliot. Um I loved this because it had come up in your memoir. And so it was pure nostalgia for me in that way. But you mentioned it in um, relation to, well, you'll, you'll tell the story better than I, but I'll, I'll bastardize it quickly. But your dad would go to London and come back with books and then he would number them L1, L2, L3 in the order in which he wanted you to read them. And you asked him whether you could write a book uh, in reference to Silas Marner. I think it was. And he said to you, you will write your own book and use your own name, which I just loved. I thought, what a what a beautiful response. What a wonderful father. Mm. What a lovely um, acknowledgement of you and history and, you know, your capabilities too. Anyway, so if you don't want to talk about Silas Marner, it was just because I wanted no, to. No, no. I mean, <laughs> Silas Marner is in there because – the book and um, and Marianne Evans were the f- it was the first time that it sparked this idea that women a woman could write something so extraordinary because I didn't understand it I, you know the mm-hmm. when I first read it I was nine or ten and as you said yes my father had brought it back from London and I started reading it and I just all the material was over my head I didn't understand you know the themes and the plot and you know. And it seems so complicated. So the idea then that not only was, you know, this story written by somebody very talented, that woman, that person was a woman. And I think to me, that was the big aha moment. Wait, George Eliot is a woman. How is that possible? And yes, going back to my father and saying, I don't understand, you know, why did she have to even, you know, why did she have to use um, a man's name? And this idea that women were not taken seriously as writers, that it had ever you know, this is just how I was raised. Like, how is it possible that women weren't taken seriously as writers? Because that's the world my parents furnished for me. But obviously it was true. And so when he said in the Victorian era, women were not taken seriously. And so she used a man's name. But don't worry, when you grow up, you know, you will write your own book and you will use your own name and everyone will take it seriously. And I Mm. think to me, I had already loved to write. I had already, you know, found it to be this great escape. That book, that experience, that conversation with my father mm. made me believe that I could write and that I would write. And then I ended up, and I did write. And so in some ways, not to be disrespectful to her and to the story, the, the message of what it gave mm. me, me, sort of the self-confidence, um, is the most powerful thing I was able to walk away with. And um, here I now I have this book. And so I, I, you know, I, I like to honor, you know, Silas Marner um, in that way. As, as a milestone. Absolutely. Yes, totally. Yeah. Have you, cause I, I, it's one of the George Eliot's I haven't read. I read most of them and not that one. So I was sort of swimming around in it and feeling like, wow, this doesn't feel like her. I, I'm so used to Middlemarch, yes. which I've read many times <laughs> and is, Right. And and there's yeah. Silas Minor, which is this much more um, Victorian, m- moralizing um, parable, it feels like. It's a very closed little space that it all happens in, rather than the sprawling, uh, you know, it's her, whatever, she's written Adam Bede, Mill on the Floss, then comes um, 
Sainz Minor, and then and then after that is is Middlemarch. Right. So she's, it's not what I would call peak George Eliot, but it is still wonderful. But it, it's it's I kept when I was re leafing through it and reading around it, I kept thinking this keeps reminding me more of Thomas Hardy than it does of George That's Eliot. So interesting. Huh. It didn't. It didn't feel. Um, I feel like the the I'm not used to her being didactic. I'm not used to her having a, a sort of severe morality. And yet it is all there. And it is something that sort of recurs actually in lots of your books, I thought, even in the ones we haven't mentioned, was this idea of um of of the individual in service to yes. the community. And and yes. that to a degree abnegating oneself in service of a of a of a community um, feels like something that sort of just recurred in 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 your work and and I I, I saw that in Silas Marner too. I think that's an uh, uh, an amazing observation and I do think it's right. I think whether it's conscious or subconscious, the idea, I mean, how we are formed as human beings, intellectually and emotionally, and the stories that spoke to me then or just opened my eyes to the world. I mean, even, you know, we didn't talk about Great Expectations or mm-hmm. Twilight in Delhi, but this idea mm-hmm. of it being an individual in service to community. And in some part, in some cases, the, the, the sacrifices you make for yourself, for the greater good, for your family, for your community. And how much do we all struggle with that? And obviously, mm-hmm. I certainly have. I think I've you know, I just turned, uh, well, I'm going to be 47 in July, but it is one of the things that I've thought about. And this is my year of saying yes, is, you know, how to be a little bit more selfish. And I think that mm. that's an important thing. And it's an important lesson to learn through some of these books and reading is that this idea of learning from these other stories and for these other sort of human, we all have our faults, but never, none of us are ever going to be perfect, but how to find a, be- a better balance in one's life. It's something I'm definitely striving to do more of. Mm. It's such an interesting idea, isn't it? And and you know how to sort of shift one's weight from foot to foot mm. in terms of the. Um, and I think particularly true as as women and as mothers is is the navigating always this this moment of self and otherness and where to where to give up where to where to surrender and go. Fine, I won't read that thing I'll come and do bedtime stories again I won't watch my movie I'll you know that this this seesaw mm. is such a tired and hackneyed expression but I haven't got a better one of, of where we live as as mothers I think um, but not just as mothers you know you're you've you've spent a life in service and and it's such it's such an unusual thing to live out and I am so struck that you know so much of that I think comes from what we see as children Mm. and seeing our parents live in a way that is in service and for me personally that's come that sense of wanting to be of service has come much much later in my life I think my mum was doing all she could just to get get it keep us uh, together body and soul there wasn't uh any sense of surplus, uh, which is to some degree, be it material or emotional, I think what is necessary, not uh, some manage without, but I I feel like a sense that there's a little extra to go around allows one to open up and offer oneself. And I, it's taken me much later in life to get to the place of going, how do I put back? What do I, how do, what, what can I offer up? May this podcast be of service in its tiny way? You know, um, may I help the kids school in some small way and be of service to that? You've lived that out on such a huge scale. I, 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 I don't know really the point that I'm making other than that it was palpable in your books. And it's really and, resonating with me, everything that you said. And I, it's one of the things I've tried to do very consciously now with my son, which is be present uh, there for him, try and support him. Because I have to say, it's a, there is a hole. I mean, there's no question, you know, I've had this extraordinary, you know, four month, is it, uh, oh my God, almost five month book tour now and just loved kind of talking about my experience in my life and this great, um, you know, privileged life that I lived and continue to live. But I will say that to be in public service for one's entire adult life, which I was for 25 years, and then to be out of it 
um, there is a hole that is very hard to fill. And, you know, certainly I'm doing my, trying to do my little bits here and there, but there is some fear deep down inside of me that, you know, that is going to be something that is going to be very hard, if not impossible to, to fill. And meanwhile, the reality of life, you know, you have to get up every single day and feed your child and send them to school and go out and make a living. And these are hard realities. Um, and so I'm still, you know, I'm still navigating my way through that. I mean, I wake up every two hours to, you know, just check the news, what's happening out there in the world, knowing 10 years ago that I would have been in the situation room or in that meeting or on that airplane and the sort of, you know, the powerlessness one has of just being an observer. Mm. For somebody like me with my background, it, it's, it's uh, you know, I haven't really had an opportunity to talk about this um, on the book tour, but it's hard. It's definitely mm. hard. It's definitely hard. And people from the outside look and say, oh my God, but your life is so perfect. And you know, you Google you and you're in some fancy dress at some, you know, ball and this. And it's like, you, as you get older, maybe this part of it's an age thing, you know, what is important to us. And, you know, um, I, I, one of the reasons I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you is you're making me um, yearn to kind of go back and maybe dive into some of these books. Because as you said, you know, there was no way I could have given you five books. When Ella asked me, I said, I can't, five, what is she Five books? That's insane. And so I said, all right, well, what were the, what are the first, you know, books that come in, uh, come into my mind? And I sent those along. And, you know, one of the, you just asked if whether doing this podcast is a small service. And I have to say, I think it is a huge, massive service that you're doing. And in part, because one of the things I really fear is I don't believe this next generation is reading books in the way we did. I just don't see it. You know, they're constantly you know, competing with, you know, their devices mm -hmm. or if they're reading, they're reading on their devices. But, you know, the, the satisfaction of turning a page and, you know, traveling, um, you know, with a book, it is such a gift. And to remind mm -hmm. people of the beauty and the joy. And I think one of the things you do so beautifully is make these connections. You know, what does it mean? What is the meaning of why you like it and what the, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne's purpose was of, you know, showing shame, but also redemption and that mm. these things are not static and um, you, you do it brilliantly. And so oh, I've really enjoyed, I feel like I've actually learned from you. Oh, that's podcast. unbelievably generous. Thank All you. I'm, I'm totally thrilled. I, I will say that my little ones, um, something I've found is so helpful with mine and that I take to doing more and more is I read in front of them. Yeah. So I bring my paperback down. I bur mm. didn't burn, but I've thrown the Kindle in a drawer and it no longer comes out so that if they see me, they see me interacting with a book at all times. And, um, and lately I've been splaying the books down on the dining room table and very much leaving them on display. And my kids are huge readers, thankfully. And they come up and they ask me and they want to know what's this book about. And, you know, the last book that I read was The Promise, the one that just won the Booker Prize and is very much about uh, apartheid in South Africa. And so to have to explain apartheid to a nine and a seven-year-old in words of one syllable was an amazing mm. challenge. Yeah. And I'm so glad that we did. Yeah. And I, I'm reading another book right now that's magnificent. And the kids came and climbed in my lap and said, what's this about? And I was like, oh, my God, it's about Palestine and Israel. Are we ready for this? <laughs> Am I ready to do this? You know, and let's get into the intricacies of that. And and I, I'm really, I was saying to my husband, who's not quite as much of a reader as I am, but I was like, when you get your one book a year out, please make sure that you read it in front of them. Yeah. Because the conversations that ensue yeah. are so wonderful yeah. and rich and they can be as deep as you want they can be as slight as you want but they do allow for a uh, an offshoot so well said i mean they watch everything we do and then yes. they copy us and so I, I try to do the same thing i'm not i haven't been as good recently but you're inspiring me to put uh, my book into you know we like we read together every night 30 minutes that's, yes that's that's the rule yeah um, but uh you know some nights i skip and not tonight for sure. <laughs> no, we all skip them. Homer, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your life in that memoir. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Both and is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And, and then for sharing yourself so generously through your books. I'm really deeply grateful to you. Thank you. I'm so grateful that you took the time and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Good. Likewise. 
Isn't she wonderful? She's so fierce and she has so much grace. I really loved meeting Homer. My special thanks to Kathy Eldon and Amy Eldon Turtletaub for introducing me to her and for also being two fiercely graceful women in my life. So, my friends, I've come to a decision, which is that I must pause bookish for a little while because I really need to write my own book. Um, it turns out writing a book is really hard. <laughs> uh, who knew? More than hard, it's really time-consuming. So I'm going to take a break for a while to turn my full attention to writing. And when I next take up the mic for season four, which I will, it will be with the newfound respect and wisdom for what it actually takes to set pen to paper and then publish. God willing, I'm published anyway. I will, of course, stay in touch. Uh, There may be special one-off episodes that I drop in to keep us all interested and happy. I think I'll miss the show uh, as much as you will. So I will throw ones in here and there. So keep an eye on Instagram and on Twitter. And of course, I'll keep you posted. Keep reading. Share your recommendations with each other. Please do. There is no greater gift than sharing a book. And thank you for being such loyal listeners. Share it with your friends. Let other people know. Let's spread the word. But I'm grateful to each and every one of you. I'll be back. I promise.